This week's episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Tune in for fascinating weekly interviews. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is the Reverend Dr. Jennifer Harvey. She's an award-winning author and educator whose work focuses on ethics and race, gender, sexuality, activism, spirituality, and politics, with particular attention to how religion shows up in these dimensions of our shared social life. Today, we'll be discussing her book, Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America, which brings her experience as an anti-racist activist and educator to consider how white communities can more deeply support racial justice work. This is our last episode on systemic racism in America, a week after the Atlanta shooting by a white man of six Asians. This conversation is perhaps more on point than ever. If white families are not actively teaching our kids how to grow anti-racist skill sets, teaching our kids how to identify with the communities that are harmed by racism and white supremacy, they aren't just going to sort of naturally show up as allies. And in a multiracial democracy, it's critically important that white folks are all in in terms of growing the kind of civic environments that we all need and deserve. And so the stakes are incredibly high on the basic interpersonal level around sustaining meaningful and authentic interracial friendships. But also um, the stakes are really high around raising white citizens that are able to show up and be part of justice movements for the good of all of us in this democracy that needs so much work. We discuss race-conscious parenting in an environment of pervasive racism and fostering healthy white identity. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mila. Why did you write this book specifically about raising white kids? Well, even though I had been engaged as a white American myself in anti-racist organizing and activism for almost 20, 25 years. And even though I knew that white people often have a different journey in order to be able to show up well in multiracial coalitions because of the way that race insulates us and we have a different journey to come into anti-racism than do communities of color, I realized when I had children that despite that journey in my own life, I had not had any mentoring about how I was supposed to talk to a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old about anti-racism as a white kid who also was going to be insulated and have unequal access to more social goods than the children of color in their lives. And I started looking around and realized that there was a real resource gap around talking to young children and white youth about anti-racism who were themselves white. Yeah, I think one of the strongest things that you talk about is sort of because white people are considered superior in American society, or at least the structure of our society is that it puts white people in a superior position, that it was really important to write specifically to white parents and white children about the opportunities that they have in advancing racial justice. What are the stakes in teaching white children? 
Well, the stakes are really high. There are so many white parents who would say, oh, I want my children to be able to be good friends to and with black children and Latino children and Asian American children. I want them to be able to function well in a multiracial democracy. But the reality is that because racism and white supremacy impacts white children and youth just as much as it impacts children and youth of color, if white families are not actively teaching our kids how to grow anti-racist skill sets, teaching our kids how to identify with the communities that are harmed by racism and white supremacy, they aren't just going to sort of naturally show up as allies. And in a multiracial democracy, it's critically important that white folks are all in, in terms of growing the kind of civic environments that we all need and deserve. And so the stakes are incredibly high on the basic interpersonal level around sustaining meaningful and authentic interracial friendships. And white parents talk all the time about how difficult it is for their kids to sort of remain as they age in interracial friendships. But also um, the stakes are really high around raising white citizens that are able to show up and be part of justice movements for the good of all of us in this democracy that needs so much work. And so um, this is like the day-to-day intimate work that is part of growing systemically just systems for everyone in our civic society. So to that end, what is race-conscious parenting? Race-conscious parenting is an immediate kind of rejection of this idea that we're supposed to be colorblind, that we're supposed to not notice race. I like to call colorblindness white silence because I learned in my journey that really so-called colorblindness is something that white families try and do. Families of color overwhelmingly like reject that. That's not the goal. Race conscious parenting explicitly affirms that we can and we should notice race, but it also suggests that we need to teach our children to recognize racism and racial injustice when they encounter it, when it's operative in our world, so that they can be conscious, active participants in anti-racist engagement. So race consciousness is simply an embrace of noticing race and a commitment to teaching about racism so that we can activate for racial justice and anti-racism. So one of the things that I thought was a huge takeaway, and this is not surprising to anybody who has children, that children actually understand at a very young age a lot of complex concepts, for example, racism really early on, and that the work cannot be done too early. Can you explain how pervasive, first of all, racism is and how it is being absorbed by even young children? Racism is like smog. We are all breathing it in all the time. And that is really helpful to me because it makes me realize, oh, smog doesn't only become dangerous to me when I become aware that smog exists. (laughs) Smog is actually perhaps more dangerous for me when I don't even realize it exists because it's impacting me and I'm not taking steps to counter it. We know from so many studies of young children that they start to recognize that race matters in our society and that racism, meaning that people who are differently raced, experience different kinds of social status, kids will start to internalize racist perceptions of themselves 
and of others by the ages of four and five. And so that's a great example of how smog is in the air, basically from birth. Families of color tend to be further along in how they talk about race with their kids. White families tend to practice a lot of white silence because we adults find race so anxiety producing. We tend to think, oh gosh, my kid's too young for this very fraught subject, right? And so I'm just going to wait till they're older. And so there's all this adult anxiety that we bring to conversations about race that will lead a lot of white parents to just go, you know what? I'm just going to practice silence here. We're just going to abstractly say, oh, we're all equal or we all bleed red blood to teach a value that we embrace of equality, but one that doesn't actually insulate our kids from the smog of racism. Kids ascertain things so young and without adult conversation, then they draw their own conclusions about what's going on in the world. Conclusions we would not endorse typically as parents. It's interesting that, you know, you hear this all the time if you're not in charge of at least the narrative in your own household. Somebody else is filling that space if you are just silent or somebody else will do it for you and yes. you don't know what they're saying and you have no control or at least you have no counterweighting impact. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, Mila, sometimes we will think, okay, well, there may be negative racist voices out there. If I just protect my kids from those, then they won't develop racist interpretations. But the thing that's so powerful about children's minds is that they are hardwired developmentally to be interpreting the world. Like they're making sense out of things all the time. They just draw interpretive conclusions themselves. Nobody needs to tell my five-year-old a racist claim about, for example, whether or not, let's say, African-American people can be doctors, right? If my child never sees, never has a black doctor, they only see white doctors, which I know as an adult is a, a symptom of structural racism, but my kid doesn't know that unless I start teaching them that. So they only see white doctors and I'm never talking with them about race and racism as a five-year-old, their brain will just start going, oh, well, I guess black people aren't doctors, right? And they'll draw their own conclusions for why that is. It doesn't even take an adult actively teaching them something racist about black people. They just developmentally start interpreting the world if systems of injustice remain invisible to them. And so that right there is a good reason for me to start talking early with my kids about racism so they understand if they're not seeing black doctors, it's because there's this system of racism in place. It's not because there's something wrong with black people. Yeah, that's right. That's a difficult conversation, <laughs> to be fair, to have a counter narrative to what they're witnessing with their eyes and ears. You have to really seek out these experiences to show them. One of the things in this context that I thought was really fascinating is the study that you cited by Mary Buckholtz in the 90s about diversity in students and how essentially white students felt that they were very uncool and that being white was a vexed location. Yes. <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. And also that diversity provides no meaningful way for white people to plug in. This is really maybe really not discussed enough that there isn't a place for white people currently to claim that as a diverse thing, or maybe diverse is the wrong thing, but you know, what, what would be the right thing? Yeah, though, this is so important and it's so counterintuitive because we think, okay, the antidote to colorblindness, we need to teach our kids to embrace difference and value diversity. Okay, great. But early our kids start recognizing, wait a second, 
value diversity. Everybody knows we're not talking about like celebrating whiteness. If you say that in most spaces, we get sort of nervous. Like that sounds almost like a a racially bigoted thing to do. And so what happens when we tell young people, white youth, oh, let's just celebrate diversity. But there's this elephant in the room that means we're not really supposed to celebrate white diversity. Well, a couple things happen. One is we set our kids up to maybe kind of appropriate black culture. Another thing that can happen is white youth in this study you cited start going, yeah, we all know white people are just like uncool, right? What do we celebrate there? And so they actually can start to develop like this resentment around diversity. We have to help white youth understand that Part of what white America needs to be about is growing kind of a culture of anti-racism, just like communities of color have done throughout U.S. American history. But we also have systems of racial inequality and injustice. And so white people can participate in challenging injustice, but we haven't made that part of the diversity conversation. And when we don't do that, White youth end up set up, in fact, to be very vulnerable to right wing recruitment tactics that want to go, you know what, all this white guilt, all this like shame and blame you're getting, come on over here, we'll tell you how great it is to be white. And so I think that we need to get really clear that just talking about diversity, if we don't talk about anti-racism, actually sets white youth up in really vulnerable ways to forces of anger and hatred. And that, of course, then sets up youth of color who end up experiencing the backlash for those recruitment tactics. So this is a really hard problem, and it's one we've got to get a little bit more honest and savvy about. What do you recommend in terms of being able to fully understand the history uh, of whites in the United States, specifically slavery or genocide against Native Americans, but also the Revolutionary War? Like, how can you have a healthy conversation about it? And what is healthy white identity? Yes, that's like the million dollar question. And even the question makes people nervous because healthy white identity, like what is that? I immediately always say if we're going to use the word healthy, then by definition, we've got to be talking anti-racist. If you're living in a white racial hierarchy like we do in the United States, I have a child who's on the cusp of teenagehood. And she is intellectually far enough along to really wrestle with this, to know the truth of U.S. American history, the histories of enslavement, the way our my very own ancestors were involved in enslavement. It includes acknowledging this is a colonial settler nation that not only dispossessed indigenous nations of their land, but also committed genocide. And I also want my 12-year-old to know that there have always been a few folks who have resisted because my goal for her is the same as it is for my own life to say, okay, these are legacies I've inherited. I reject these legacies, even though I benefit from them every single day. And so I want to choose to be the kind of white person (laughs) that fights alongside of others for more just systems where the histories that I've inherited are being redressed and the ways these histories manifest in the present, that I'm working with others across racial lines to create a more just society for everyone, in part as a way of taking responsibility for my ancestral legacy. On the other side of white guilt is 
agency-filled decision-making about what kind of white person do I want to be. And so with my 12-year-old, I'm always like, what kind of white people do we want to be? We're trying to be the kind that are in active partnership with people of color in our own community. And so that's the goal is to realize we can acknowledge the truth of those histories without letting those histories determine the future or even the now. We can make choices about who we are, even as white Americans. Yeah, I like that. Before we return to the rest of my conversation with Dr. Harvey, I want to thank our sponsor this week, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan hosts one of the best interview podcasts out there, and that's high praise coming from me. He understands what it takes to make great interviews, and he does it more than once a week. Impressive. Apple named The Jordan Harbinger Show one of its best of 2018, and for good reason. Jordan gets fantastic insights and advice from some of the most interesting people alive today. From CIA spooks to astronauts and neuroscientists, Jordan asks the right questions to help you better understand the world around you and keep you on the edge of your seat. I really enjoy the show and think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I have a question in terms of having agency, because at the end of the day, like you are somebody who is going to be active in this, but a lot of people just won't be. What could be something that everybody can do that's not a huge lift? Because, you know, so much of what you're saying really is a challenge. It really takes thinking and doing, and it requires us to be purposeful. And for a lot of people, it's not going to be possible. Let's think about all the spheres of influence you have in your life. I've been involved in lots of various kinds of organizing for years, and yet I wrote a book about parenting, which in some ways seems like the most individualistic thing you could do, like, oh, what's going on in my household? Well, the reality is one of the most important spheres of influence I have, whether or not I'm ever in the streets, is on my own children, on my own family. Those of us who look at this huge crisis of racism in the United States and feel very overwhelmed by it, we can take a step back. We need to sometimes take a step back and say, okay, I have a sphere of influence in my home. I have a sphere of influence in my workplace, perhaps. And so can I at least decide, okay, when we all sit down at an extended family dinner table at some point when COVID is no longer, can I really commit to next time uncle so-and-so says this about race, being the person at the table that interrupts? Could I commit to doing that? That may sound small, but part of this generational work is interrupting individual acts of racism. And so that's a really important sphere of influence that doesn't just impact who I am and my relationship with uncle so-and-so. It actually impacts the next generation as they watch that interaction happen. I think those of us with children or youth in schools can think about how can I be a good partner there, supporting teachers in growing inclusive curriculum, inclusive classroom environments, growing relationships across sort of the parent spectrum of differently racialized groups with different class experiences. That doesn't take being a big community organizer. And so bringing race conscious habits to the things we're doing all the time as parents is one of the commitments we can make if we really 
are what we say we are, which is equity minded and justice committed, even though we're sometimes not sure what to do about these big problems our society is facing. Oh, I like that. I like that the personal actions will have hopefully a collective effect. And if more and more of us do that, then it'll all make a difference. In fact, one of the things that you mentioned is that sometimes it takes just one white person to speak up to free up other white people to speak up also. Talk a little bit more about how we can be active proponents for this in schools. So I give a story in the book where actually my child came home from school with having made a headdress for Thanksgiving, which I know for lots of reasons that that is not something children should be doing. Any children who are not Native should not be making headdresses. And I felt incredibly nervous about saying something to the teacher because I didn't want to shame and embarrass her. But I also knew that I had kind of a a moral responsibility just to name that I was bothered and troubled by that. What I learned in that conversation, and I've learned this many other times, as soon as I started to say something, she immediately said, oh my gosh, I knew this shouldn't happen. I knew I shouldn't have let this happen. And she went on to explain how it had happened. And it turned out she had done what I had almost done, which is someone else had suggested it. She had not stopped it from happening. And me saying something immediately enabled her to say, oh my gosh, I knew it too. And I didn't say anything, but now that you've said something, I can assure you this is never going to happen again. And I've had other experiences like that where, you know, as human beings, I think it's not just around issues of race. We often kind of are nervous to be the first one to put our toe in the water. But once someone does, a lot of times we find out, oh my gosh, there's a whole bunch of people here who are willing to have my back or who are willing to also say, yeah, we need to actually change what's happening here. You know, schools are hard because teachers have state level like curriculum expectations. They have to worry about all kinds of different parental backlash that might come. And meanwhile, public school teachers certainly are sort of underpaid and publicly undervalued, truthfully. But I think that one of the things that goes on in our classrooms is that teachers and administrations often think like, okay, race is so loaded, we got to just sort of stay away from this. But the reality is we know we cannot create truly inclusive learning environments for all children, especially for children of color, if we presume to believe that the experiences of race they're having in the outside world aren't going to show up in the classroom. And so colorblindness just does not work as a, a sort of even playing field teaching strategy because all children, but certainly children of color, don't experience colorblindness in the world. They experience racism in the world. I think parents have a huge role to play partnering with teachers, partnering with the administrative staff in growing the language of race consciousness and teaching practices that are race conscious in our school buildings so that all kids and youth get more truthful and complete education. It might feel scary. It might feel hard, but it's urgent for the sake of all of our children that we just do it. Yeah, it's very uncomfortable. But like you said, it's necessary. One of the stories in your book that really struck me is when you were teaching What Does Justice Look Like, the book, and the history of how Minnesota became a state, which elicited horror at the history and outrage at never having been taught the history. And I think this kind of goes at the heart of colorblindness and diversity, both at the same time, that we talk about it in a way that's sort of everybody's equal. But in reality, actually, that's not what we're doing at all. (laughs) When we're teaching colorblindness or we're using euphemisms or neutered history, we're actually actively changing the narrative. 
Absolutely. I mean, whitewashing is really what it is, isn't it? That book, I teach that in my college classes. And what happens in the room is this sort of pulsing energy that is like so alive and so painful because, well, I teach in Des Moines, Iowa. And so there's a lot of students from Minnesota here. And the white students are like, oh, my God, I've never learned this history of my very own state. Right. And what they've learned instead is a white colonial settler history of the state of Minnesota that is not only factually incomplete and very inaccurate in ways, but they end up really sad and angry to find out that they've had their own history of ancestral participation in human rights violations completely withheld from them. And so sometimes I feel like, oh, if their parents and teachers only realized they were longing for more accurate, morally complicated, more truthful sort of engagement around their own histories. And if we would just sort of, again, go there with the young people in our lives, I think we adults would find that they are just like yearning for conversations about how to make sense out of what's going on in this country. And we would all be stretched and grow deeper roots with one another if we would risk having these conversations with all of our young people much earlier in their journeys. Yeah, that's really powerful to have that understanding from your point of view since you're teaching this class. What did you learn in the process of writing this book about anti-racism work in families or even in students that you didn't expect that really was a surprise to you? What a great question. I think racism has made communities of color, families of color vulnerable without them having a say. White families like mine, we have had the option of not getting vulnerable. And I think one of the things I learned when I wrote Raising White Kids is that the act of getting vulnerable actually opened me up in different ways than even my longtime engagement in racial justice activism had ever allowed. I learned that being vulnerable about how these transmission processes of teaching race actually show up in children's lives was an incredible gift, not just to other parents who also were similarly struggling as I was, but even to me going, you know what, this is mucky and messy and hard. And like, I want to show up perfect in the world, but vulnerability in this work is actually really sacred because it's the only way we start to connect and be authentic around just how messy and difficult this crisis of racism is in our nation and how intimate it is. So I think the gift of vulnerability was one thing that I learned most profoundly in writing this book. Yeah, that definitely came across in the book. So as an everyday person, what are two things that I could be doing or maybe at this point thinking about to advance anti-racism, specifically as a white person? One thing as an everyday white person would be to think about, okay, what is it right now that makes me uncomfortable? If the 12-year-old in my life was to ask me this question, what would be my discomfort point? And just to kind of get curious with myself about why that is and what I might need to read or watch or listen to next in order to grow through that discomfort. One of the things we can all be doing is becoming better partners for the children and youth in our lives. And that sometimes means learning things that we don't know yet. And it's okay to be curious about that. I'm curious where I get uncomfortable and what I don't know. And how could I make it a commitment to just grow and know that next thing? So I'm, I'm learning and then modeling that with the kids in my life. I think the second thing I really want just everyday white folks to realize we can do is, again, literally look around and think, 
okay, there's seven days in a week, there's 24 hours in a day, I'm involved in all these different kinds of spaces in the world, where could I make one commitment at my workplace, for example, to growing anti-racist environments? Is there something I could be doing with others? And what would that thing be? And again, what would I need to learn to do that thing and, and do that thing well? I like it. That's good advice. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Well, what makes me hopeful is the way people continue to mobilize, to organize, to resist, to all through summer 2020, multiracial groups of folks stepped in and stood with Black Lives Matter movements that had been organizing, of course, for years and years. There was this sort of influx of energy that moved into support of those movements that we had not seen before. And also that same mobilization, I think, led to the dramatically different election outcome in November of 2020 than what we got in 2016. And I don't feel sugarcoated optimistic about how hard the road is ahead, but I feel hopeful about how many more people in this nation who've been on the sidelines of the struggle for racial justice, for really pro-multiracial democracy, have now gotten into the streets or gotten into phone banks or gotten into sort of voter education and anti-suppression work, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel really hopeful about that. The work is hard that we face, but I feel like there's been a consciousness uh, spark that I really believe we might continue to see move and grow if enough of us stay really plugged in. I feel some hope that we will. Yes, I hope so too. I do also believe that everything that we've seen in the last six months bodes well for us, given the work that we have to do. And it looks like people are really invested in doing yeah. this work going forward. Yeah, yes. Well, thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight and thank you for all the work that you do. Mila, thank you so much for having me. It's been just such a pleasure to engage with you. We started the season with looking at the role of white supremacy in white Christian churches and then embarked on a close examination on how racism is systemic in the United States, ranging from housing and labor to education and health. If you haven't listened to them all, I urge you to go back and tune in. It seems fitting then that we end with an episode on race-conscious parenting for whites and wrestling with what healthy white identity should be. As an Asian American and a parent, I am so thankful and hopeful that Dr. Harvey is engaging in this important work. Parents have so much power in shaping the worldview and moral outlook of their children. In this moment of racial reckoning that runs the whole spectrum from Black Lives Matter to Stop Asian Hate and white domestic terrorism, white parents have an opportunity to be proactive. They can choose who they are as white Americans. The stakes couldn't be higher. We'll be on hiatus for one week and we'll return with an updated episode on the state of the Supreme Court with Adam Cohen, the author of Supreme Inequality, then an interview with Laura Joyce Davis of the Shelter in Place podcast about what we've both learned through our podcasting journey. So if you want to get a glimpse of who I am as a person and how podcasting has changed me over the years, this one's for you. And then we'll kick off an all-author season with the legendary Kurt Anderson on his latest New York Times bestselling book, Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Admos. 
Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sion. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.